Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. The group is all here. Josh, Matt, Brent. We have a great show for you today. Uh, we have a topic that I think really brings in a lot of opinions and emotion. But I think what will happen today is we'll try to bring that all to a head and support it with some facts. So before I get into that, though, what are what are your guys' most common services that are being delivered to your house? Hey, Brent. Great to see you today. Uh, so on the delivery side, I've been using the Amazon Whole Foods grocery delivery service. So I've been getting the groceries delivered to the house. It's easier than just going to the grocery store. They still have lines where I live because I, I live in Los Angeles City. So it's not as opened up as other parts of California. Um, obviously, Amazon.com, buy everything off that place. You know, a new package arrives every day with me and my wife. And then uh, for my meats and fish, I use uh, U.S. Wellness Meats and this fish place. I believe it's called Sea to Table. That's you're still you, you're still using a lot of delivery services. Yeah, it's just easier. It's, oh, and, and then of course, you know, we're getting the Grubhub, um, DoorDash, whatever the restaurant is we want to. They're all on different platforms, so we're getting those delivered usually one meal a weekend, one on Friday night usually. Yeah. That's what we're still using. Well, we're still using uh, one of the Grubhub, DoorDash, whatever we're kind of feeling like, and that's probably yeah, usually once a week. And then obviously Amazon have been using it, still using it, but not really using like the, the grocery service anymore. Since the grocery stores are like not as packed, there's not really any lines around here. You know, I, I kind of like getting out of the house and, and going grocery shopping. Um, like I was pre-COVID. So uh, not using too many other other delivery services than, you know, the Amazon needs and, um, you know, once a week food delivery for dinner or something like that. I, I enjoy going to the grocery store too. Like I make my one trip a, a week to the grocery store and I get all the kids' fresh fruit and vegetables and all the stuff that we need. But some of the things that we use more commonly, like outer aisle, which are, you know, cauliflower flats instead of, you know, having bread or Rayo's spaghetti sauce, things that I can order directly from those services, Siete products. Uh, we've been having those delivered. So mine's more of like a, the products that we use and we want more of, I just order them directly. So when I go to the store, I don't look like I'm hoarding baskets full of food, you know, <laughs> trying, to, you, trying to avoid having to, you know, stack too, stack too much in my basket. Yeah. I have a question for you. Do most of those direct companies have free shipping or is it because that's one of like the benefits of Amazon or using some of the service or it's all included. Do they have options for free shipping? Yeah. So there's two benefits. You get free shipping. Number one, number two, one of the other things that it's cheaper than some of it is in the store. Mm. And then the other thing is, is that a lot of it you can use on the honey app and the honey app's going to find you the coupons. So you, then you save even more money off of it. Yeah. There you go. See Matt. Yeah. <laughs> so, so even though honey doesn't work for Matthew, it's worked great with, delivering services and foods directly to your door. I'm glad it's helping one of you guys. A couple of weeks later, honey still hasn't worked. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like a common topic on this podcast. No. All right, well, let's get into the headlines. Uh, Airbnb filed for an IPO, meaning the stock will be publicly traded. You think investors will want to get in on the IPO? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to be a very popular IPO. I'm, I'm sure we're going to get our phone will be ringing off the hook from either potential clients or our current clients who, who want to try and get in on this. Um, you know, it's one of those things, though, where it, it's usually probably not best to buy the day the stock comes out or even a couple of days after. 
Um, we've seen it with a lot of these big recent tech IPOs that have been highly anticipated. Uh, but the stock actually usually does maybe like a one-day pop and then uh, kind of slowly sells off. And there's a few reasons behind that. The The main reason is, you know, all the early investors are actually selling. So what happens when, when you're doing an IPO is the people who invested in the company when it was, you know, essentially worthless are now selling their million dollar positions to you and me. Um, and then the other thing is the employees, right? Because the employees, they get their stock options and those best when the companies go public. And so they want to cash out. They want to buy a home. They want to buy, um, you know, a vacation home. They want to pay off their student loans, whatever it is. But they're going to use that Airbnb money to accomplish their personal financial, I guess, goals. So when does the employees actually get to sell it? Are they doing it before it actually hits the market? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure. Um, with regards to this Airbnb IPO, uh, but different, usually there's different times they could sell. One thing that's happened with companies staying private a little longer is there are services where employees can get what they call liquidity, which would be selling some of their shares before the stock was public. And as for um, the other part is there usually is some kind of lockup period, usually like one to two weeks after the company goes public, and then they're allowed to sell which is another reason probably why, you know, the stock price probably is going to shoot up right away. So if you don't get in on the IPO, you haven't really missed anything. Josh, what do you think makes this IPO so popular? I think just the the glamour of it, right? So many people, we've talked about Airbnb on this podcast before, but know what Airbnb is, like the model or use the service. I know I'm a, a user of Airbnb and we've talked about it multiple times on the podcast. So I think getting exposure to, to a service that's very well known, um, very well publicized, and, and you could see the, the demand for it probably even going forward is making it very, very attractive to the investors. Yeah, there's a couple of things that kind of strikes me about this. It, it makes me feel kind of like it's, it's a very trendy kind of IPO, because I think that when a lot of people hear Airbnb and they see the model, they think to themselves like almost, man, I wish I bought two or three houses where I can rent out as an Airbnb. So it kind of gives them, even though they may not have that money to go out and buy a property that they could put on Airbnb, kind of gives them that feeling that they're invested in a company or model they believe in. Yeah, absolutely. And just even with friends conversations, right? And, oh, we should buy in, you know, X city uh, and rent it out as an Airbnb. Like that's like a common, you know, kind of conversation nowadays. I think it's just getting in on that exposure or that kind of uh, glamour of not only being invested in real estate, but renting out the property in a service you probably are, have already used or might use in the future. But fundamentally, I think that, you know, Airbnb, there are some red flags. I'd have to probably agree with with Matt. They've, they've had some trouble um, even on the you know security of the rental properties and stuff like that. So there is fundamentally some things that to definitely look out for with Airbnb, but definitely has my interest. Uh, I can see why it is. I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast, like I mentioned before, and definitely has, has uh, something I'm going to be looking at. Yeah. I think what's always interesting is mo- many people think they, they, they get it at the IPO price before it hits the market, which they don't actually get it. They get it once they hit the market and that's you know generally two different prices. But I think a lot of people think they're going to get it for this big value price that Really, they can't even buy it at that time at that level. Very true. Never going to happen. That's only for the early investors. Despite being in a recession, the stock market is almost near all-time highs. Why is the stock market going higher? Crazy, huh? 
this insane. It's been a really good run up since the uh, March lows. I believe it's probably around March 23rd when the stock market made its low. Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons though. So there's two types of stimulus, fiscal and monetary. Fiscal definitely helped. It, it got some good earnings for some retail companies as people start spending again. Uh, but monetary stimulus is when the Federal Reserve starts injecting money into the markets. And they injected a ton of money into the bond market in the early spring. And to give you an idea, in between the time period of 2008 to 2013, they injected as much as they did during the spring of 2020. So they did some monetary stimulus that was, you know, basically on steroids. So that's a really good reason why. And then, you know, look at interest rates. Interest rates are super low right now. Um, no one's earning anything in savings accounts. So bonds are paying one, two, three percent. So, so stocks look pretty attractive. I think that also, you know, we have to remember how the stock market's valued, which is based off of, you know, forecast of the future. It's discounting future cash flows of businesses. It's not continuously looking in the past. So, you know, looking to the past bad news, you know, and anticipating better conditions going forward. So in the next, you know, 12 months, 18 months from now, you know, that's being priced into the market, guiding it forward. And then I also think that the good fortunes of the big tech companies, right? I mean, these big tech companies are, are making record profits and growing and, and they're driving a lot of this growth. So the combination of those two and what you said as well, Matt, is all helping the stock market move forward. Yeah, I think another thing that's interesting too is, is like Matthew said as well, is where are people going to put money where they want to get some type of returns? I mean, even if you said you had three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 sitting in cash that you wanted to buy a rental home, I think pretty much most every state is not evicting people who aren't paying rent. So essentially you could buy a rental property, get a renter in there, and, and the renter doesn't even really have to pay rent because there's no evictions. So literally you could have a rental property with somebody in there for probably what, another six months, eight months or a year, not paying any rent. I mean, that's not a guaranteed investment either. So just, it's a, it doesn't seem like there's very many valuable places to put your money right now. Yeah, there's not. No. All right, well, let's get into the retirement planning corner. Uh, our topic today is, will the stock market crash before the election? And what sort of prompted this topic is um, a couple of different things. I think it's a very heated and emotional election for obvious reasons right now. And a lot of people have strong feelings already going into election year on what the response of the market will be. But this just seems to bring out so much more of that with the emotion that's happening right now. Uh, we're already starting to see a lot of people predicting whether or not if Biden wins, if that will have an impact on the stock market, if Trump continues on what that impact may be. And you start to see a lot of conservatives start to say, well, if Biden wins, I want to start getting out of the market already. So there's there's a lot a lot of people really have a feeling about this. And if there's a lot of articles already starting to be written about what people are predicting in terms of if there is a change from Trump to Biden and how that might impact it. Matthew, what is the market going to do and you know what is your thoughts on this election yeah uh, well un unfortunately i can't predict the future i wish i could because then i'd be able to tell everyone either to buy more or get out but since i can't predict the future all we could do is you know use what we we know and right now we know the economy is recovering i understand why people are, are nervous because maybe they don't like biden or maybe they don't like trump but what one thing i'll point out is 
you know, during the 16 election, um, Hillary Clinton's campaign was saying, you know, Donald Trump gets elected, the stock market's going to crash. Well, Donald Trump got elected and the stock market crashed this March, finally. So that was, what, three and a half years it took? So sure, they were right, but it took three and a half years. And right now, Trump's campaign saying, well, if Biden gets elected, the stock market's going to crash. And all it is, is it's a campaign strategy. You got to remember, both these two people are trying to get elected. And it, it's nothing more than, than essentially hearsay. Josh, what's your thoughts? Yeah, it's just so uncertain. And I know we're going to get into you know, some of the data behind market returns in election years. But this is a very, very popular topic right now. Um, again, just with clients, friends, and family about elections. But to try to predict and then, you know, if you do feel strongly one way or the other about who's going to be nominated and then, you know, elected and then what the market's going to do after that, I mean, then that's going to cause an, for you to take an action if you feel that strongly about the short-term fluctuation. So, you know, then you have to ask yourself, what is that next op- option? And, you know, that becomes very tricky because you're an investor of what to do with all of this money you've accumulated. So I think that rightfully so, it's a very popular topic now, and I'm glad we're going to, you know, dig into it further. So Dimensional Fund Advisors is an investment company, and they did research on this exact topic, and, and they started to lay out the, the returns during a presidential election year. And here's some of the facts behind it. Over the last 12 elections, which really goes back to 1972, only three times has the market finished down. And only one of those times was it really that significant. That year was 2008. And really, obviously, the crash of 08 had nothing to do with Obama being elected. It was the mortgage-backed securities that basically crashed the market. But then more importantly, only three times did it finish down the following year since 1972. And only one of those was of any significance. That year was 2001. Why was that? 9-11. So really when you start to look at the impacts that have happened in election years or years following election years, it's been almost some type of crisis that's happened in the world, the country, that had really had nothing to do with who was elected president. Yeah, those are some great uh, points, Brent. And, you know, I, I would say that if the market is more likely to go down um, because of COVID or the COVID recession, then it is who's president. And, you know, looking at the data, what, what Dimensional Fund Advisors has found is that, like you said, it doesn't really matter who's president. And, you know, Republican, Democrat, stock market returns are always pretty good. I'll roll off a few that I see that really stick out to me. Um, George W. Bush was a really, really famous president. Awful for the stock market. Lots of people loved him, but he had negative returns on both his two presidential cycles. Correct. But you could argue that both of those weren't really his fault, right? That you had 9-11 and you had the 2008 crash, unless you say the 2008 crash is you know, partially his fault. I mean, his was a matter of circumstance and timing almost. He didn't he didn't really cause the, the 9-11 issue. Potentially, but I mean, he's the only president since 19, essentially since World War II that had negative stock returns. I think that that's more eye-opening. <laughs> I mean, you're saying that that's the only you know, president that had negative stock returns in there. So when I see it, and I'm looking at you know, the chart that you're reading off of about which president was in office and relating it to their rate of return during their term, 
there's no pattern. It, for the most part, it goes up. So like, you know, we're looking at the data to try to find a pattern for an explanation to take action in November, but there is no pattern. So I think that's what's the most eye-opening to me is that the data isn't really pointing you one way or the other, Democrat or Republican. Let's go through the 90s, right? Because it's the most, the most recent. So we'll start with Clinton. So the returns during Clinton's first election period were 17% per year. The, one, the next one, it was, again, 17%. Then Bush, we've talked about, was negative for his um, eight years in office. Then Obama was positive 14%. And then again, another 14% for his next term. And then lastly, so far, Trump's been positive 15%. So it really doesn't matter who's in office. Uh, Democrat, Republican, the market does pretty well. As long as the economy is doing well, stocks are going to do well, and you're going to make money if you're investing in stocks. Yeah, so if, if you're looking at your retirement assets or you're looking at your investments, you, know, you should be looking at these as long-term investments regardless. So if you think that one year or one period in time, which is you know, the time that he, someone is elected to what happens over the next six months, is going to have that much impact Really, the data suggests that it's not, but even if it did, when you look at the historical returns of how much they've made during the time that they've been in office for four years or eight years, the numbers are astronomical that it just means to stay in the market. Yeah. Yeah. And, and especially, you know, looking as a long-term investor, you're talking about a presidential term of four years. So then we just have to really ask ourselves, what is your time horizon as an investor? If you don't have four years to be invested, then that's a different question than who's going to be, you know, president or not. I think it's just kind of confirming what you just said is is, is time horizon, and we're in this for the long run. It is very important um, when looking at you know election years. And Matt, what's your thought on the philosophy that some people have of, well, I'm going to get out right now and kind of wait and see what happens till the election happens, and then. You know, if, if everything's fine, I'll get back into December or January if it feels like, you know, the market is in a position that I'm comfortable with. It doesn't work. I, it, you know, it's so hard to predict the future. Uh, you know, find whatever your favorite hobby is. You're a golf fan, you're a sports fan. Try and predict the outcome of the game based on a point spread. It's really hard. That's what you're doing when you're trying to pull your money out of the stock market. It's either going to go up or down. It's a 50, 50% probability. It's actually a little bit more skewed. 80% of the time, stocks go up. Um, so again, you have the probability against you if you're pulling out of the market, which is not something that I would do as somebody who kind of, you know, enjoys gambling on sports here and there and is a, a big-time investor. I mean, you know, use the probability to your advantage. And the probability says 80% of the time, stocks go higher. Yeah, and if and if that's what the data suggests, and, and people know it, because there's other factors that are involved in that besides just those. I mean, it's... No, you could be an investor that has a, a fair amount of money that's after-tax money that's been in the market for the last several years that you have a lot of gains that are sitting there in your account. You go to trigger a sale on those positions. Now you're paying capital gains tax on those positions or you're paying taxes on them if you not, haven't held them for a year. And then you're not, you, so you pay a bunch of tax on it. You're hoping you're going to be right. There's an 80% chance saying that you're not, but you're hoping you're going to be right. You pay the tax. If you're not right, you're paying still the taxes. So when do you get back in then? Absolutely. And the whole thing about taxes is kind of silly. Um, you know, this is like a PSA. People are saying, oh, Biden's going to raise taxes. Well, I got news for you. Taxes are going to raise no matter what, unless they 
past the, the lot of sunset, the Trump tax cuts, which are probably going to be unlikely if um, the House and the Senate are both blue. So when, when is that? Is that 2025 when his tax cuts expire? Yeah. I thought it was 2026, but it's right, 25 or 26. Yeah, uh, taxes are going higher no matter what, people. This is a temporary tax cut. And, and so do you th- is the thought that the tax cut would go away immediately or taxes uh, would get raised immediately if Biden was to win? He has no incentive to do that. He, he would actually have an incentive to um, extend the Trump tax cuts. But that can't be the only fear. I mean, because there, that's another uncertainty. Yeah. Like, yes, we know that that's going to expire, but it is an uncertainty of whether if it's going to get extended, how gradually it will increase. Like, we, we don't know that. So we're trying to solve for something uh, that we don't know the answer to. Like, focusing on things are, that we can control is probably more important. And then to go back to what you were saying about selling in November, even getting back in December, is that a foregone conclusion? When do you get back in the market? I know we've talked about this in the past, that you have to be right twice. So even if you're right and you sell right before the election and the market crashes and you miss the recovery, like we've just seen with coronavirus, you could miss out on great rates of return. We know there's a difference if you miss great days in the market of rates of return versus you just staying in the market through that whole period, buying, holding, and being that disciplined long-term investor. And I don't know if you remember on uh, election night, the night Trump was elected, that whole night, the aftermarket was just tanking. I think it was down, what, like a thousand points? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And then by the time the market opened in the morning, it was going up. Mm -hmm. So everybody was, you know, panicking. And then next thing you know, it settled off. And, you know, we could see what happened over the last three and a half years. It's been pretty consistent returns with a small little blip in 2018. I I think it's safe to say uh, that one, we can't predict where the stock market's going. It's very difficult. Like Josh says, you got to be right twice. And number two, I think we could safely predict that it doesn't matter who the president is. It's not going to cause stocks to crash. If stocks crash, it's going to be because of something else. I agree. And you have to, you have to see through it. You have to see beyond it. You got to look at a time horizon that's much further than what's going to happen over the next six months. I agree. And I think one of the data pieces that from this study was the average return during an election year is 11.3%. So even in that year leading up on average, or in the year that we're going into the election, it's still over 10% rate of return. Like it, that, that's one number that in this study stood out to me. Very, either, very, still very good rates of return out there. Are, are either of you making any changes or transactions in your portfolio leading up to the election? No, I mean, the only thing I'd do is if, you know, I come into some extra capital, I'd potentially, you know, move something around in my portfolio if I find a better investment to, invest my money into, but no, I'm not selling. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, if there's opportunity, um, yes, but no plans to sell because of an election. No. I mean, my portfolio is built uh, for the future. And so I'm, it's willing to sustain through, through any period. And, you know, of course I'm always open to opportunity. Like I think Matt was just saying, but um, no scheduled or no plan to, to make any changes going into you know November. Yeah, I'm not looking to sell any either. Um, I, I wouldn't do that. I, I like buying and holding. I don't like over trading. I like having positions long term. I'm just not a reactive person who wants to look at it every day and make changes just because we think we might get a political change. If anything, you know, it, it's probably going to be short lived. The data suggests it all, right? If you look at the historical data, that's the most powerful thing. If the, the data suggests that 
you know, the chance of, of the market going down is going to be of, a, of something that we can't predict, a crisis that we can't predict, 9-11, a pandemic, the 2008 crash. I mean, chances are you shouldn't be overreacting to something like this. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on this topic, guys? Um, no, I mean, it's uh, my last thought is when you look at, you know, presidential cycles, they usually last eight years. So that probably puts a little favor into Trump's. Trump's camp most likely to get reelected. I'm looking at these graphs and I don't see a, a, at any time going back to the 1929 that there was a Republican president for only one year or one cycle. So, you know, all the people think, hey, Trump might not get elected, stock's going to fall. Uh, the odds say he probably will. Can we put some of these slides in the show notes? Yeah, yeah, we can. Um, I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a blog post okay. um, to go over this and I'm going to have all these slides in there. Perfect. I think that's great because then people can actually see a visual of some of these slides and I think they're extremely powerful and helpful. Yeah, I agree. Any parting thoughts with this topic, Josh? No, I just, you know, lean back on, on uh, didn't really see any, any pattern. So, you know, to try to forecast is really difficult going into this election. And, you know, the stock market, like I talked about earlier, when we're saying why it's going up, is it prices in a lot of, you know, the future kind of information. So, again, just really, really hard to, to predict any of that. Stick to your plan. Um, you know, if you're a long-term investor, hold on to that discipline through these times because, you know, you saw that more likely than not, the stock market's going to keep going up. I have one last thing to say. I was wrong. I was looking at the end of the data. I now found uh, Jimmy Carter was a one cycle done president. And um, I, I know he was a very uh, controversial president, similar to Trump. And after that, the economy really boomed, really took off. Um, so, you know, keep that in your back pocket. I mean, maybe that's what happens here if Trump doesn't get elected. Yeah, I agree. It's it's emotional election for everybody. I think everyone has very strong feelings one way or the other. I think just hold on tight. Uh, data supports sitting just the way you are. Don't be over reactionary and just sit with your portfolio the way it is. You know, if you're going to make a change, make a change for a long term, not because the election's going to happen. That's a great point. All right, let's get into one of our favorite parts of the show. RPA recommends. Uh, I'll start with you, Joshua. What do you have on deck for our recommend today? Um, quick, quick story. So um, right after I proposed to my fiance, who's now my wife, we took a trip to New York and Matt gave us a recommendation to eat at a place called Pizza Loves Emily. And um, I saw an ad online. So we ate there. It was delicious. We loved it. My wife loved their pizza. I saw an ad online to order their pizza directly to my house. So from New York, they ship it over to you in California. You reheat it. I think it's like halfway cooked. And it's through a service called Gold Belly. And so it was really cool. So I went on their site. I was able to order it. It was delivered. It was delicious. Um, and they also have like other famous restaurants throughout the country that you can ship like their famous dishes, whether it's a, a burger or, you know, all different kinds of stuff from all over the nation. So um, just a really, really cool service, kind of, you know, luxury um, item for us. So obviously not going to do that all the time, um, but it was really, really cool to have, you know, one of her favorite pizzas shipped from New York to the LA area, getting to heat that up and it tasting, you know, almost just exactly the way it was. So brought back some good memories um, of our trip and uh, gold belly. So that's my, my recommendation for today. 
I think it's neat, like the you, food options nowadays. It's like the virus has opened up a lot of options with food because you don't have to go to a restaurant; you can have it delivered in. There's just so many ways that you can get food nowadays. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really, really cool. And like all the sauces came like individually on the side, so like it didn't, you know, soak in there or whatever. So we got to kind of dress it up um, once it was cooked. So it was just really, really cool. Came in a big freezer box, you know, freezer bag in a box, and delicious. Pretty neat. Matt, what you recommend today? So the last two shows, we've been talking a lot about the stock market, common stock investing. Um, I'm going to recommend a tool that we use on our side um, that individuals also have access to. If you are you know, a do-it-yourself investor, uh, check out Wise Charts to do your stock research. Uh, they have plans that are for you know, institutional clients like ourselves, um, but then they also have some pricing plans for individual investors where you could, uh, you know, get some really cool stock data to help you pick winning, winning stocks. That's great. That's a, that's a neat one. I think that's one that's helpful. I, I think I'm going to stick with something similar where it uh, can be helpful for people on the financial topic. Um, I'm going to recommend people to use uh, mint.com. It's something I don't think I've ever recommended on the show, but it's a way for people to manage their income expenses, how much they're spending on a monthly basis. You can sync up your accounts, uh, your bank accounts, your credit cards, and it will tell you every month what you have coming in as income, what your cash flow is, what your expenses are, and how much you potentially can be saving every month. And it will show you what it's done you've been doing in the past and what you've been doing projecting forward. It's a free app that you can use. You just go to mint.com. It's an an introductory way to, you know, being able to do things without having to use like QuickBooks or, or Intuit or Quicken to try and, you know, manage all of your expenses yourself and categorize and, and put them all in. So I think it'd be a, a great one to, to use for uh, budgeting software. I may have used it in the past, but I can't remember. I don't think so. I don't think you have. So good one. Uh, any other thoughts, guys, on the show? No. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's September, so enjoy football season. While it's, while it's here. Yeah, and hopefully we get some cooler weather soon. Uh, thank you for listening to the Retirement Plan Playbook. Please give us a review on wherever you get and stream your podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, go to our show notes. You can go to Retirement Plan Playbook. Be on the lookout for Matthew's blog, which will get posted with some of those charts. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Thank you. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcast. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.